Before we get started with everything, I wanted to make sure that you aren't missing out on all of the dastardly delights that we have to offer. Scary Stories Told in the Dark is but one of the many shows that you could be listening to. Be sure to tune in Wednesdays at 6 p.m. for the latest releases from Fear from the Heartland, hosted by Paul J. McSorley. Be sure also not to miss Horror Hill, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, and the eponymous Chilling Tales for Dark Nights podcast. You can find all of these on YouTube and the podcast platform of your choice, or you can get the ad-free versions by subscribing at the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights website. Thank you again, dear listeners, for staying as spooky as you do. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Jiry, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 12, Episode 14. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing three tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Dale Thompson. Tonight we'll hear stories of lonely lighthouses, hopeless hotels, and jaunts with just desserts. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first spine-tingling story. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors... Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Pity the poor lighthouse keeper. Stuck in one place by himself all alone. No one else to babble about their latest and greatest gadgetry. With only the power to control which ship crashes on the rocks and which doesn't. Actually, now that I think about it, that's not a bad job after all. Unless, of course, you're just there on business, like our friend, in this upcoming tale. He's come to check up on the regular keepers, and they appear to have gone missing. He volunteers to stay behind to discover what happened. Shame, then, that he may discover more than he bargained for. Without further ado, I present to you 
The Lighthouse, The Diary, and The Dead. Death may be the greatest of all human blessings. Socrates. The lightkeeper was retiring. He had two wikis assisting, young lads whose job was, but not limited to, the responsibility of tending and trimming wicks for the light. All three men were being relieved from their duties, and they'd be off Flannan Islands in the remote outer Hebrides on the coast of mainland Scotland very soon. This archipelago was remote and uninhabited. Three men were looking forward to leaving this barren rock. Past twelve months, they'd been on duty, taking shifts. They were done with solitary life for a while. They wanted to get to the mainland, mix and mingle, and have a good night's rest in a comfortable bed. Their bodies were worn and their eyes were tired from guiding transatlantic ships toward the harbor in Leith, Scotland. The relief vessel... The Hesperus carried the lighthouse tender who was going to go ashore and take over the duties until the full crew could join him. There had been some terrible weather in recent days, and this delayed the relief ship an entire week. Concern had been raised as the steamer Arctur had reportedly passed by the Flannan Isles lighthouse, and her light was not operational. This was cause for concern, because the dark lighthouse meant real problems. When the Hesperus came upon the landing platform to the lighthouse, on the day Ratcliffe McLean was to go ashore and relieve the three men, he noticed, as well as the rest of the ship's crew, none of the men on the island were waiting for them on the dock, as procedure dictated. The captain sounded his horn, and a flare was released into the sky. No reply reciprocated from the island. Another peculiarity was the flagstaff was missing the signal flag. The crew of the Hespers knew this was an ill omen. Radcliffe demanded the supply boat be lowered into the water. Without delay, he'd go immediately to shore. Radcliffe was not afraid, but apprehensive based on the oddities he'd witnessed on the island. Some might say he was a brave man, but he was, in fact, better described as a conscientious but not risk-taker. He was going to go beyond the strata of his own safety. He carried a locket that contained a picture of his deceased wife, who ironically had drowned two years ago in a freak accident, when the boat on which she was a passenger tipped over and she plunged into the water, never resurfacing. She was a beauty, long, dark, flowing hair and fair skin. Ratcliffe took a look at the picture in the locket. He made eye contact with his wife, which for him was a sign of good luck. Closing the locket, he placed it in his vest pocket and prepared to launch for shore. He went alone, rowing through relatively calm waters, pointed toward the black precipices and craggy clefts barren of vegetation. Part of the island was hidden in a sea of vapor, he steered directly to the dock. Upon arrival, he made note of more irregularities. Both the entrance gate and the gate leading up to the compound were shut. This submerged him into suspicion. Ratcliffe remembered he was carrying a loaded revolver, and if there was trouble, he would not be hesitant to use it. There was an unexplained eeriness, causing the hairs on the back of his neck to stand up. 
the sky turning gray with a backdrop of gloom, he ascended the long staircase leading up to the lighthouse. Every step of the 160 total steps was a foreboding reminder that he was most likely alone, possibly something tragic or sinister, that have happened to the three men. It was breathless once he finished his exhausting climb to the lighthouse itself. His nostrils were filled with the smell of the sea, mingled with lime wash and tar. The tower was a beautiful sight, standing 23 meters tall, like a monument erected to the God of Light. The wind was picking up and Ratcliffe felt the raw power of the turbulent flow as it got closer to the structure. It consisted of a circular three-stage tower with a one-story keeper's house on the northwest corner. The second stage consisted of a corbelled walkway and steel railing, and topping the tower was a cast-iron deck. He couldn't imagine where the others were. They should have greeted him the moment he came ashore. Cautiously, he entered the lighthouse through the unlocked door to find many other disturbing things. The air was cold. No fire had been lit for some days, and a dampness crawled into his clothing. Initially, he found no signs of a struggle or foul play. There was no indication from first view, no evidence there had been a mutiny or violence of any kind. The beds were unmade. The mechanical clock had wound down in the kitchen. There was food on the table, and a chair had been left knocked over. This was an indication that whatever happened to the three men must have caused great alarm and happened unexpectedly and quickly. There was a set of unused oil skins still hanging on a peg, which meant one man must have gone out without any waterproof clothing during the storm. It had been a bitter cold winter, so why would anyone, under any circumstances, think it was a good idea to go out into a storm without their oil skins on? especially since this was December in the Outer Hebrides. How could three experienced lighthouse keepers have just disappeared from their posts? Ratcliffe concluded it was possible, when the storm hit, two men must have gone out to store equipment. When they didn't return, the third man left his post, which was a severe violation for leaving the lighthouse unattended, and in breaking this rule, must have been swept away, possibly, by a rogue wave. It was simply a tragic act of nature. Storm conditions, gale-force winds must have swept the men away. The geos, or narrow gullies, could create gigantic waves due to how the water was channeled. He was obligated to submit his findings. Ratcliffe sent word back to the ship he was staying on to perform an investigation. He suggested the Hesperus return to port and he'd give his findings to the Northern Lighthouse Board so they could start an investigation. In the meantime, he would gather as much evidence as he could and wait for the investigating superintendent to arrive from Edinburgh. After further investigating, he concluded that there was no other life to be found on the island. He crawled over rocks, walked the shoreline, even fired a flare, but received no response. Down by the landing platform, he discovered the mooring ropes. Landing ropes and derrick landing ropes were strewn about and tangled on the rocks. These ropes were usually held in a brown crate 70 feet above the platform on a supply crane. 
The iron railing around the landing was warped and twisted out of shape. It also appeared a sizable piece of rock. It come loose and tumbled down the jagged cliff face, smashing at the bottom. He also made note that a life buoy was missing, torn free from the path's handrail. The iron railings around the crate platform, from the terminus of the tramway to the concrete steps up from the west landing were twisted as well. Maybe the lighthouse keepers had gone down to save the crate and tragedy hit them. But if this were the case, where were the bodies? He assumed there'd be a good possibility of them washing back up on the shore, yet no one was found. According to the clock, which was frozen in time, whatever had happened a week prior was at the same time the storm had blown through. Ratcliffe returned to the lighthouse and located the logbook and found it to be quite unsettling. Some of the last logs entered were terrifying. Severe winds, the likes of which I've never seen before. Gale north by northwest. Sea lashed into a fury. Waves very high, tearing at the lighthouse. It also appeared, from what was written, the men, at one point, were all together crying. But an odd entry, thought Radcliffe. These men were quite tough. It must have been a storm from the abyss. Other log entries showed desperation while the storm raged on, and the men resorted to praying for their lives. Questions arose in Ratcliffe's mind. Why would these seasoned lighthouse keepers be afraid of a storm? Fascinatingly, on the dates they described the storm hitting, there were no storms reported in the area by anyone. Storms, which had delayed him from arriving on the island on time, had hit three days later than their entry indicated. The weirdest log entry was the final log, which read, Storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. What was meant by God is over all? Puzzled and concentrating hard, nothing made sense to him. Three men snatched off the rock of Island Moor without a trace. The sort of thing just didn't happen. Island Moor was the largest of seven rocky outcrops, 45 rocks and islets. The men could have rode out the worst of the storms, and the mystery was, why did they leave the safety of the lighthouse? Radcliffe could not get over the fact that the crew had recorded a storm, but no storm had come until many days later. Ratcliffe made his way up to the tower to the watch room and found everything to be in order. The raison d'etre was protected by a dome cap and a weather vane. He ventured out onto the balcony and saw nothing to cause distress or concern. The astragal, which is a metal bar dividing the lantern glass into sections, was undamaged. He noticed a faint paraffin odor in the air, not so unusual since the lighthouse use this fuel to operate. He looked about the chariot, which is a wheeled carriage at the bottom of the Fresnel lens assembly, an optic consisting of a convex lens and umpteen prisms of glass, which focus and energize the light through reflection and refraction. All appeared to be operational, capable of allowing the clamshell-shaped lens to rotate around a circular iron track atop the lens pedestal. It was positive the height of the focal plane would be accurate. Everything appeared unremarkable with the light itself. For now, 
Ratcliffe knew he would have to be the interim lightkeeper until relief came in a few days. He returned to the kitchen in order to make himself some dinner. He'd lost track of time and the night had fallen. He didn't want to move many things around for fear he may impede the investigation when the investigating superintendent arrived from Edinburgh in the next few days. He did keep a journal, and on day one, began to fill the pages with his own investigation and findings. His first entry was December 26, and read, Arrived at Flannan Isle Lighthouse. All is not well. All three lightkeepers have vanished without a trace. Searched the island and the lighthouse itself. It's apparent that they were under great distress from the storm. All three men abandoned the lighthouse at some point. The living quarters were disheveled, signs of panic all around. It's likely that their last meal was interrupted. I'll include their log journal in this investigation to testify to their mental capacity in their final hours. Much of what I've observed shows possible madness caused by the fear of a storm and possible isolation syndrome. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. December 27. I awoke this morning to find the lighthouse in full operation. The lamp was burning bright. 144,000 candle power shooting its beam 20 miles out. This is impossible was a white flag flying on the flagstaff. How this got there and raised is beyond my comprehension. I skipped breakfast and investigated the outside surroundings. The weather is bitterly cold. The water spray is enormous today. My main concern is how did the lamp burn all by itself and how did that flag get raised? December 28. I had a miserable night's sleep tossed and turned, and when I finally slept, I was restless. I was sleeping, yet not sleeping deeply enough, to wane off the hints of nightmarish images and visions which taunted me. I may have drunk too much coffee before bed. I will not make that same mistake again. I woke up exhausted, so I decided to do very little and catch up on my sleep and start afresh tomorrow. Late entry. Right before bed, as I was about to extinguish my IOV lamp for a brief moment, I swore I heard a man's voice. It was faint, and the tempest was whistling outside dreadfully, but I had to guess one way or the other I swear it was a voice. I went to the window and looked out, but all that was visible was darkness and the splatter of rain against the window pane. 
December 29. Oddly, there was absolute silence when I woke up this morning. I got myself dressed. I heard neither wind nor rain. I went up into the lighthouse tower to find that the light was not illuminated. I wasn't about to touch a thing, much less carry fuel up and down this cast-iron serpentine staircase. I would have breakfast, which I did. Afterwards, I dressed warmly and made my way outside to attempt to recreate what those three men were possibly doing when they were snatched away. I climbed the rocks again, looking for clothing, a boot, a hat, something that may have blown off their pockets on that fateful day. All I could see were rocks, rocks, and more rocks. Rock formed from cooled lava and dolerites, intruding archaean gneiss, a type of metamorphic rock created by extreme pressure. I'm not sure what I expected to find. I covered many acres and found not one single hint as to where the three poor souls went. I'm now back inside and trying to stay warm. December 30. Something terribly disturbing for me to wake up to. All three beds were made up on my waking. I swear I did not touch their beds. I'm sleeping on a cot I found on the supply closet. All three beds were perfectly made. Someone or something is playing a trick on me. First, there was the lamp burning without fuel. Then the distant voice of a man. And now the beds. I'm either in a haunting or I'm losing my mind. I interrogated my mind looking for any objective that would bring me resolution. I searched the closets, under the beds, checked the locks in the door, which I pathologically lock each night. I am a man of routine. I am the only person in the lighthouse. It is perfectly clear. I have been visited. December 31st. I'm sleeping with my revolver now. Not that it would have any effect on a spook. I don't believe in such things. People allow their imaginations to run wild, and they invent all sorts of scary monsters and devilish things. Never had interest in such rubbish. I am a man of principle, fact, a man of science. I sat listening most of the morning for sounds or movements or anything amiss. Late afternoon, I went to make myself a coffee, and the coffee pot had already boiled. I lie not. I did not boil the jug, but when I went to make coffee, the water was steaming hot. January 1st, the new year. The temperature is freezing. I still have fire and food. I expect the relief ship with the investigators soon. Hope they arrive expeditiously. I feel as though things here are darkening. I'll be honest. I'm bewildered. There's an imponderable evil enmeshed in the soul of this place, cackling at me, watching me, and drawing the darker things closer. I'm no ferologist, so I am no expert. Yes, I can maintain and operate a lighthouse, but I know nothing about haunted lighthouses. Today, in the kitchen, I found a chair which had been knocked over during the time the three lightkeepers went missing to be upright and pushed to the table like the other chairs. I purposely have not touched the dining set, not wanting to contaminate any evidence that might remain. 
I feel a presence, something unseen but acknowledged, an unspoken respect of the unknown. I'm going outside less. I'm not going to the light at all. I think there's something not quite right about this lighthouse. January 2nd. It has been too many days now. I would have expected my relief with an investigating officer to have already arrived. There must be some sort of delay. I can sense the weather is changing outside. It doesn't look good. Bad weather will delay their arrival. This is something I'd not counted on, nor can I afford such a long wait. My nerves are getting the best of me. I catch myself humming stupid little songs just so I don't go mad. I have some reading material I thoughtfully brought with me, but reading often puts me to sleep, and now I'm uncomfortable with closing my eyes. When I do close my eyes, strange and peculiar things happen. This has led me to the wildest conjectures and greatest disappointments. I could no longer depend on my theoretical extrapolations. All I had was conjecture. Positives or proofs. January 3rd. I was startled out of my sleep by the voices and wailing of men. My mind was in the early morning fog and my eyes were adjusting to the peculiar spectacle. This was beyond the scope of the ordinary. I had to be dreaming, I thought. I knew no one else was on the island. I was alone. Where were those copious, incessant wails coming from? I had to be careful, not foolhardy. Had someone come ashore while I was asleep? It was doubtful, but not impossible. You'd think a strong man with a revolver would never feel fear, uncertainty, or extreme apprehension, but it's not the case. I stuffed my fingers and my ears as an experiment. If I could still hear them, it would suggest I had gone mad, and all of this congruence I was experiencing was merely in my head. It would be an undeniable concern for sure, yet treatable. If I stopped hearing the sounds of mournful men, the solution would be these men were real and somewhere nearby. As soon as my fingers were inserted, the wailing ceased. What is their game? Why the trickery? They're not fooling anyone. I'm off to see if I can uncover this horrible trick and expose it for what it is, a con, a farce, nothing but deception. Late entry. I have once again searched everywhere within earshot of my last position, and have come up empty. January 4th. I just realized this is the new year. I find it ever so strange to enter a new year alone on an island with the paranormal present. I smelled a strong, meaty smell of bacon. I examined the kitchen, and no bacon was found. Maybe it was wafting from the walls where the smell had embedded itself through the full year of frying bacon for breakfast. I heard a rattling of chains outside, put on my oilskins, and proceeded outside. It was frigid and damp. Thank God there was no rain. I searched over the right slope of the lighthouse because the sound seemed to resonate from there, but I had no success. January 5th. I had a dream of little people. Little people with an unrecognizable dialect. 
They had surrounded my bed as I slept. These fey people in the dream did not appear to want to cause me harm, but I had an unpleasant uneasiness with them, standing there looking at me while I slept. I'm sure it was just a dream. January 6th. Getting tired of eating canned fish daily, but with no sight of my relief, I must ration. I cannot imagine what the delay could be. I've not seen evidence of a storm. I will light the lamp tonight and send out a distress code for any passing ships. Matter of fact, I've not noticed a single ship while I've been marooned here. January 7th. I'm afraid now. I'm terrified. My pertinacity is caving in. I'm weakening. The blackness I sense has sponged my bravery away, leaving me consumed by fright. I lit the oil furnace, and as the room heated, I heard a rap at the door. My heart leapt with excitement, for I believed it to be my relief. When I answered the door, no one was there. On my life, I swear, on my eternal verities, in my peripheral vision, I saw a fleeting, dark-haired woman rush out of view. Although I was not dressed for the cold, I went hurriedly in pursuit. I swear I saw her, a woman with long, dark hair and a white dress. But my pursuit was in vain. She was not to be found. I'm convinced now, more than ever, that I'm bewitched in some capacity. In the uncharted vastness of my inner habitation, somehow she had touched me intimately. Was she engaging in some dreadful malignity? My apperception and concept of time were retreating me into a prison of abstraction. I'm forever accursed and alone. The island seems to possess dark secrets, hidden intrigue, and troubling, surreptitious mysteries. She looked much like my beautiful lost wife. January 8th. The storm of the century has come to this place. I have lit the light and began sending distress signals out across the water. But no ship would or could sail these waters. I mopped water from the kitchen before bed. A window was cracked open, which I did not open myself and had not noticed this entire time. The kitchen was very wet. January 9th. Daytime is gloomy and dark, for the storm still rages on. And the sky is a torrent of foulness. I suffer through the elemental sounds mixed with chthonic fury, and it intensified incrementally from rudimentary beginnings into crude distortions of unimaginable scale. I'm urged by the tingling of my weary nerves to brace myself as catastrophic gale-force winds and devastating, noisy rain batter the place unapologetically. I cannot take more of this blitz. The storm has crescendoed, and I know I'm to die. Moreover, it relinquishes its magnitude of terror, and as far as I can see, the lighthouse still stands. The light has been turned red without me touching it. How is this possible? I don't know. It's no longer illuminating white. It has a red glow as of a fire. I've been locked out of the lantern room. I cannot find my key. I did not lock the hatch, 
but it's bolted shut and my key is lost. It's imperative I open the hatch. The tower still glows red. I cannot compass these intriguing happenings. The parameters of my expertise are being stretched. The infinite pathos of my emotions is being strung thin. January 10th. I've stopped sleeping. I'm eating very little. I wonder if my relief is lost at sea, or worse. Maybe the maelstrom has dragged them down into the depths. I am praying. January 11th. I awoke, still sitting at the kitchen table, where exhaustion must have overtaken me. Here's the thing you will not believe. The woman with the dark hair was in the kitchen, with her back to me at the stove. Was she here to inveigle me? The only sense was my sight. All other senses were numb and deadened. I focused, trembling at the sight of this woman. I have no idea how she could have entered. Everything was fast and tight. Her unnatural taciturnity troubled me. She never said a word. She stood unconcerned, not at all acknowledging my presence. This was an insoluble enigma. I cleared my throat to get her attention, to make myself known. When I did, her body flinched, then disarticulated in a sickening display of contortion, as if she had a severe delirium episode, and the image evaporated as if she had never existed. In desperation and despair, I sat frozen in disbelief, constricted in my throat, could not make a sound or release even a whimper. I saw this with my own eyes. I do not exaggerate. The light in the tower still burns a majestic beacon of red, flashing twice every thirty seconds. And my key has still not been located. January 12th. The storm has ceased. Something beckons me, drawing me to the window. I hear the screeching sounds of birds outside. I first imagine it is seabirds that have flown in from the neighboring island, so I go outside to have a look. Up to this point, I've not remembered seeing any birds on the island. To my astonishment, there are a dozen or so enormous birds of prey sitting on the wall which surrounds the tower. They are not guillemot or shag. These birds are much less. They skulk and twist their heads, as if measuring me up as their next meal. Birds have the head shape of a southern cassowary, but a linear body like a lammergeier, but twice the size. I noticed before heading for cover that their talons were unusually long, a grizzly bear claws. That means one thing. They're meat eaters. Killers practiced in the art of savagery, and no way am I returning outside until I can be sure they're gone. January 13th. The birds are still out there. These menacing creatures are not seabirds. How have they come to this island? Today I observed through the window the birds are off the wall and edging closer to the door. I feel they're waiting for me to step out cannot leave for fear I will be eaten. This has caused me to become upset 
but a foreign umbrage has assailed me. I do not have enough bullets for all of these raptors. I need more paraffin oil, so I'll have to make an attempt. January 14th. No birds lurking today. I made a successful trip to retrieve more oil. Still haven't figured out how the light is working without being maintained. I dare not speculate in my mentally disheveled state. I'm becoming more unstable, emotional. My comprehension must be more in focus. I must try the hatch open and evaluate this mystery closer. The first time was a feeble attempt, but the second time, success. I pried the hatch, broke the lock, and entered the lantern room. The moment I entered, the light shut off its red glow. Closely examined and scrutinized every inch, every nook and cranny. I heard a bird chirp, not one of the massive prehistoric vultures outside, but a small, whimsical chitter. It was a canary. It landed on my shoulder. I was startled at first, but it seemed harmless. I assume one of the men had brought it as a pet. I polished the lens to the light and returned downstairs. January 15th. Heavy, impenetrable veil of fog is set in. I'm debating whether to start the light again. I need more oil. Retrieve the oil? No sign of the giant birds. The little canary's doing well. It's eating, and I have located its cage. I am in incipient danger in some intangible way. I'm thinking of myself as a denizen of this place, like I belong here. Then it all could be some narcotic-like dream, ethereal, not subjected to the outside world. January 16th. The fog won't lift. Started the light again in hopes someone will see it. It's beaming white light. I'm still perplexed over the red glow from days ago. I saw wet footprints through the kitchen area, as if someone barefoot walked through from out in the rain. The size of the prince was small, like a woman's. I have to imagine it was the dark-haired woman. I ask myself, am I completely mad yet? Or have I developed lysophobia and will soon be schizophrenic? Is this how it starts? The delusions are growing in intensity. I saw a figure, not the woman, but something else. Like a shadow figure, a black mask, gin peering around the doorframe. When my eyes caught sight of it, it moved back out of sight. I know I sound pusillanimous, but I physically jumped. A contemptible dark thing it was seen for only an instant, yet purblind, daunted by this sense of mystery and shock, it has plagued my mind. January 17th. I've grown more nervous, and anxiety is hard to be back. The fog won't lift. I ventured outside and needed air, needed more space. I saw the dark-haired woman in white on the steps, going down to the sea. I called to her, and for a brief moment she stopped as if she'd heard me. But she never looked around. I called again and began to chase after her. As God is my witness, the woman began to dissipate before my very eyes. She went into her round bounding down the stairs, lifted her arms over her head, and turned into a ball of light that shot into the night sky 
like a rocket. I've never seen anything like it before. I cannot sleep. I keep thinking about the woman I've seen a few times here. She must be an apparition. A human being, unless they're a ghost, just doesn't turn into a specter and vanish into a ball of illumination. My question is, where has she come from? Why does she look so much like my wife? I must see her face, but I dare not tempt the dead. Before the lighthouse was built here, I know this chain of islands had a miserable reputation. This was called the Island of the Dead, or the Seven Hunters, because of how many ships had come too close and hit the rocks only to sink to the bottom. But do not exaggerate. This is not a figment of my imagination. Could it be some who perished on these deadly rocks before the lighthouse was constructed, walked the rocks of Island Moor today? If I ever believed before, I believe now in the existence of the living dead. As for necromancy, magic, or otherworldly phantoms, I'd be stuck in a purgatory? I don't know. I'm no expert on the matter of occult practices or mysticism. I can only believe what I see. January 18, I've been abandoned, exiled away from the living. I heard footsteps in the living area last night. It sounded like a single person walking about. I was too overcome with fright to cry out or to look for myself. I went up to the parapet to get air, breathing in the fresh air and listening to the crashing of the waves below. I cannot stay here forever. I will soon be out of supplies and will starve. I suppose I could use a bullet, and if the enormous birds return, I could shoot one. I have no idea how the other birds would react. Would they attack me? If it comes down to it, I'll kill one of the birds to survive. January 19th. Another rough storm's blown in. It woke me with the sheets of lightning reiterating the rolling and cracking collapse of thunder like cannonball fire. There was this brooding, torrential, malefic fury. The building, as sturdy as she was, shook and shivered. Piled logs in the fire to gain more heat and light for the room. I heard pretentious laughing through it all. The sound of more than one man laughing in a cacinated mockery not make out what they were laughing about. Gesticulation and laughter and deep collective breathing impinged on my sovereignty as a man. I did get up and walk through the living space. I heard faintly convulsed laughter, lost, echoing in the cisterns of thought. I prayed for faith. I hoped the voices would lead me. I asked God for spiritual vitality. I wept for no reason. I was losing myself in the murky purlieus of impossible thought with vague imaginations when somehow I began to feel coeval with the lighthouse as if it saw my heart. I gathered my emotions and set out to see what I could discover since the voices had gone silent. My curiosity took me to the light. There, I witnessed moving shadows in the shape of people hovering before my eyes, not fixed on the wall as they should be, but as if they were beckoning me. 
My eyes were impeded by the glare of an oil lamp. But I saw long, ink-black tentacles reaching out as if they were attempting to escape. A serried army of phantoms, all in rank, moved and swelled, becoming stealth-like at times, sweeping, deepening. The blackness which held me in impalpable terror during this slow fest, writhing, faceless torture. Unexpectedly, the shadows were absorbed into the darkness, as if a great force bowed them swiftly away. I fell down, exhausted. My strength was ebbing, and I was cold and stiff. I caught myself trembling. How long had this side effect been going on? I needed rest. January 20th. It is with disquiet and dread I continue my journal. I noticed, after checking on the light and winding the clock, that the wick needed replacing. I've done regular maintenance and changed out the wick. After saturation, I lit the wick, and capillary action was normal. Pumps working normal, still anticipating a relief vessel anytime. I've always frowned upon the thoughts of clairaudience. Never have I been interested in the psychical nor am I theosophical-minded. Yet there had been a deleterious influence upon my rationale. I could not consider any of my convictions absolute. Obstinately, I denied the existence of ghosts, apparitions as the figment of fanciful imaginations inflated rapidly by fraudulent, mendacious, unprincipled, and uncouth inventions of the duplicitous. January 21st. I'm going mad. I awoke early morning to find I'd sleepwalked out of the lighthouse. I found myself swathed in mist at the edge of a cliff, looking down at the water as black as nori. The ambient exhalation from the sea must have awakened me. The shock of my position, inches from falling into the black abyss of tumbling waves, drew me a smothered scream in frantic admonitions as my hands pressed hard against my mouth. I'd been caught in languor, and reverie, a dream state. I stood astonished at the panoramic view of the great Atlantic Ocean. As harrowing as this was, and as volatile as I had become, I returned, drenched from head to foot to the lighthouse, where I stoked a fire and prayed. January 22nd. I'm ablaze with fever. I'm a sweltering, perspiring mess. My skin is seeping from every pore. While I washed my face in the early morning at the basin I'd filled with hot water from the stove, I heard a repeated tapping. Tap, tap, tap. I thought it was coming from the window. I looked out and saw those enormous rooks, or whatever they were flocking around my door. They were pecking at the door as if they were attempting to break in. I retrieved my revolver and covered the door. The hideous squawks and squeaks of those rapacious fowl needled into my brain. I warned them with loud shouts, but the pecking continued. I thought at this rate they'd be inside and upon me in no time. I banged on the door with my fists. They seemed to make them stop, but then they started again more viciously with devilish intent. 
could not allow them inside. I would have no place to retreat to accept the lantern room. Purposely, the repaired lock had broken, so I would have a way of escape. I aimed my gun at the door at a level that if I fired, would hit at least one of them in the chest. I had every right to be ornithophobic. I fired my revolver. With a bang, the bullet tore through the wood and a hideous cacophony of wings, beating and thrashing rose as a clamor of excitement ignited at the door. I ran quickly to the window to evaluate the damage. Two of the freakish birds were down on the ground. They were not moving or fluttering at all. The sky became black. This was the moment I saw the murmuration of thousands of birds twisting and turning, rolling in coordinated patterns high above. A dozen or so living birds took flight, swishing away with incredible power to join the others. I watched until, while on the edge, they became one, and no one bird was distinct. I've never seen such a phenomenon in all my life. They rose out of sight and were gone. Once I'd gathered myself, I retrieved the birds and brought them inside, where I carved them like a Christmas turkey. I was not about to let this go to waste. Despite what I'd witnessed, I was desperate and delirious. I was struggling with apoplectic thoughts from fever, which still clung to me like a steaming hot cloth. January 23rd. My fever broke last night, but not until I had some disturbing dreams and restless sleep. After making sure the coast was clear, I took the leftover pieces of these two birds. I would gladly dine heartily for the next few days. When I returned to the lighthouse, I was spooked to see there were three lit candles flickering on the kitchen table. Impossible. I was not only flummoxed by this unexpected magic trick, but I was truly petrified. I'm not alone. I'm not in control. I'm aghast by what I'm witnessing here. I could not be more alarmed than I am right now. This is what I thought until I left the candles burning and walked to the bedroom where I found three men sleeping in their beds. This could not be. My mind was endangered and it exploded like the force of cannon fire. I was thinking more unthinkable thoughts. I'd left my revolver on the table. I backed away, returning to the kitchen. I fetched my gun and slowly made my way as quietly and furtively as I could to the bedroom to find the beds empty. It has been a late night. I'm writing with my back to the wall, giving the place a good looking over. Nothing outside of the ordinary is manifested. Getting tired. Memory is fading. I'm forgetting who I am. Who I was. January 24th. While sleeping, there was a flash, both fire and ice. My heart was filled in my sleep state with inevitable conviction and unpleasantries so maniacal. Couldn't be certain I still existed in the land of the living. The little people who had surrounded my bed in the first few days of my quarantine here returned to my dreams. They call themselves those burden. They were diminutive pygmies and did not mean me any harm. They were not happy I shot their birds. 
They took one of the carcasses and left me with the other. They spoke in monosyllables, reluctant utterances of febrile madness, but I understood all of their gibberish. When I awoke, I found one bird had been taken. This plumbed the depths of my heart, drying out like water from a well. Inconsistencies revealing no rhyme nor reason. I spent the day polishing the lamp, filling the fountain and checking all the binds on the windows. January 25th. I've been praying Bible verses I've memorized as a child. I sought after a Bible, hoping the good book could give me strength and courage. But reciting the Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm eased my worries somewhat. I heard voices again, rattling chains, and there was moaning. I prayed louder. I have my revolver with me now, always. Rain is falling again. I'm drowning myself in notes of black caffeine. At least the coffee is in abundance. January 26th. I didn't sleep. I ate some of the bird I'd killed and became deathly ill. Poisoned, it seems. Sweating with a fever, yet I'm shivering cold. I tried drinking water, but it all came back up. I must rest. January 27. Still alive. January 28th. Vivid dreams of dying. Peaceful, floating, drifting. My mind is hyperaged. Levy is broken and is pouring ever more infamously, like a fractured cataract, overswollen, flooding over its banks, running, draining. I pray that I see the dark-haired woman again before my time's done. What if it is my wife? I still have never seen her face. January 29th. It's snowing outside. I managed to make it to the window. I ate some stale crackers. I'm still praying. God is over all. A white flurry of snow in the air. The relief vessel arrived with the investigating superintendent, Benjamin Fairbanks, from Edinburgh. He was accompanied by four other men who were keen on gathering the facts and evidence of the disappearance of the three lightkeepers. The flag was flying on the flagstaff, which is a good sign. They walked the lengthy steps up to the lighthouse, where they found the door unlocked. The first concern was a bullet hole in the door leading into the living quarters. It was certainly not characteristic of a lighthouse. Who would need to discharge a weapon if they were alone? Benjamin let himself in cautiously. The other men followed. He called out Ratcliffe's name, but received no answer. They searched the lighthouse, which was in order. They took note of the broken latch to the lantern room, but everything else was in its proper place. The table was clean. There was wood in the stove, but it was not lit. The clocks were wound. The beds were made. Everything was as it should be, with the exception of the missing Ratcliffe McLean. There were no blood stains, nothing broken, nothing surmisable. There was no evidence he had ever been there except one of the men spotted a revolver, his revolver, a small wood pile beside the stove. After a quick examination, they determined one round had been fired. The question arose, why would he have the need to fire a round? They looked for other bullet holes but found none. 
A thorough sweep of the lighthouse proved fruitless. They took their investigation outside. They combed the craggy, foreboding archipelago. Benjamin ordered the men to keep up their search as he retreated to the lighthouse. He was in desperation to find the logbook. He wanted to see with his own eyes how the three missing men had recorded their final days. Locating the logbook in a bottom drawer of a desk, he sat and opened it up. There he found a journal of Ratcliffe McLean. The dates of Ratcliffe's entries puzzled Benjamin. It was such an unaccountable thing. The journal was dated from December 27th, and Ratcliffe's last entry was January 29th. This could not be. Absolutely it could not be. Benjamin scratched his head. He reasoned how impossible and absurd this was. Ratcliffe had a journal for more than 30 days. Benjamin knew for a fact that today's date was December 31st, and tomorrow was the New Year. How would Ratcliffe have written things which happened on days that had not yet happened? What gave him cold chills was Ratcliffe's last entry. God is over all. It was the same phrase verbatim that the missing lighthouse keepers had recorded after they wrote the storm had gone. Ratcliffe's locket with the picture of his wife was recovered on a cliff overlooking the water. Nothing of Ratcliffe's body was found. I hope you enjoyed The Lighthouse, The Diary, and The Dead by Dale Thompson, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you just one last time that tonight's featured authors can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Thompson. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash T-H-O-M-P S-O-N. When he's not writing the spooky stuff, he's cranking out the tunes. Give him a listen over at YouTube, won't you? It's definitely worth it. As a reminder, if you decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word or a thoughtful public comment in an upvote. And be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program and that me, Otis Jowry, sent you. It means more to me than you could imagine, and I'm sure he would pretty much appreciate it as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page, or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference, and it would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast, 
and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. Subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>